In Jesus' name, amen. Does anybody here claustro- get claustrophobic? You know, like being in confined places? This is part three of our series on Jonah. And of course, I get to cover the part of him being swallowed by a big fish and his sub- subsequent prayer, which I've always already read. Here's the sermon in a sentence. I deserved everything that has happened to me and more, yet your grace and mercy have saved me and given me another chance. Does that not speak of Jonah, and does that not speak of the many second chances God has given us in life? You know, sometimes, this is really rare for me, my wife will say amen to this, it's rare for me to be awake in bed at night. Really rare. I can sleep through anything. But sometimes when I am, particularly this last month or so as I was preparing for this message, if I was awake, I would think about what it was like for Jonah to be swallowed by that great fish. And I would sit, I would be just thinking about it, and I would start to shudder, and I think to myself, I would rather die than be, be awake inside of a great fish or a whale. I would just rather die and go to heaven. You know, the account of Jonah and the great fish, it seems to be hard for some people, some skeptics, to swallow. There you go. Pun intended. But the Bible, the Bible treats this incident as a historical narrative, not as myth, not as an allegory. In 2 Kings 14.25, it calls Jonah... Uh, an historical person, a prophet. And Jesus used Jonah as an example of a prophet, of which Jesus is an even greater one, Matthew 12, 41, a greater than Jonah is here. He also used Jonah as a foreshadowing of Jesus being in the tomb for three days and then being raised again. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth." Jesus compares himself to Jonah, so if Jonah wasn't real, if he wasn't a real person, where does that leave Jesus? Jonah was a real historical person. This is what he went through, and we get to read about it. Before we get into Jonah's predicament in his prayer, though, this, what follows, is a real-life account of a sailor, a whaler, named James Bartley. James Barley was a sailor on a whaling ship, the Star of the East. This goes back over 100 years. In February 1891, the ship was in the vicinity of the Falkland Islands, which is near Argentina, Southern Hemisphere, searching for whales. Now, I'm going to read the account. This was written up in a newspaper or magazine shortly thereafter. One morning, the lookout sighted a whale about three miles away on the starboard quarter. Two boats were manned. In a short time, one of the boats was near enough to enable the harpooner to send a spear into the whale, which proved to be an exceedingly large one. With the shaft in his side, the animal sounded and then sped away, dragging the boat after him with terrible speed. He swam straight away for about five miles. When he turned, and came back almost directly to the spot where he had been harpooned. The second boat waited for him, but when... uh, 
when but a short distance from it, the whale rose to the surface. As soon as his back showed above the water, the harpooner in the second boat drove another spear into him. The pain crazed the whale, for it thrashed about fearfully, and was feared that that the boats would be swamped and the crews drowned. Finally, the whale swam away, dragging the two boats after him. He went about three miles and then went under. His whereabouts could not be exactly told. The lines attached to the harpoons were slack. The harpooners began to slowly draw them in and coil them in the tubs. As soon as they were tautened, the whale arose to the surface and beat about with his tail in the maddest fashion. The boats attempted to get beyond the reach of the animal, but it was, which was apparently in its death agonies, and one of them succeeded, but the other was less fortunate. The whale struck it with his nose and upset it. The men were thrown into the water, and before the crew of the other boat could pick them up, One man was drowned, and James Bartley had disappeared. When the whale became quiet from exhaustion, the uh, waters were searched for Bartley, but he could not be found. Under the impression that he had been struck by the whale's tail and sank to the bottom, the survivors rowed back to the ship. The whale was dead, and in a few hours the great body was lying by the ship's side, And the men were busy with axes and spades cutting through the flesh to secure the fat. They worked all day and part of the night. They resumed operations the next morning and were soon down to the stomach, which was to be hoisted to the deck. The workmen were startled while laboring to clear it and to fasten the chain about it to discover something doubled up in it that gave spasmodic signs of life. The vast pouch was hoisted to the deck and cut open, and inside was found the missing sailor, James Bartley, doubled up and unconscious. He was laid out on deck and treated to a bath of seawater, which revived him, but his mind was not clear. He was placed in the captain's quarters, where he remained two weeks, a raving lunatic. That's how it was written. He was carefully treated by the captain and officers. He finally began to get possession of his senses. At the end of the third week, he had completely recovered from the shock and resumed his duties. During the brief sojourn in the whale's belly, Bartley's skin, having been exposed to the action of the gastric juices, underwent a uh, striking change. His face and hands were bleached to a deathly whiteness, and his skin was wrinkled, giving the appearance of having been parboiled. Bartley affirms that he lost his senses through fright and not from lack of air. He remembers his sensation of being lifted in the air by the nose of the whale and dropping into the water. Then there was a frightful, a frightful rushing sound, which he believed to be the beating of water by the whale's tail. Then he was encompassed by a fearful darkness, and he felt himself slipping along a smooth passage of some sort that seemed to move him forward. This sensation lasted but an instant, then he felt he had more room. He felt about him and his hands came in contact with a yielding slime substance that seemed to shrink from his touch. Are you grossed out yet? It finally dawned upon him that he had been swallowed by the whale and he was overcome by horror. 
by the situation. He could breathe easily, but the heat was terrible. It was not of a scorching or stifling nature, but seemed to open the pores of his skin to draw out his vitality. He became very weak and grew sick to his stomach. He knew there was no hope of escape from this strange prison. Death stared him in the face, and he tried to look at it bravely, but the awful quiet, the fearful darkness, the horrible knowledge of his environments, and the terrible heat finally overcame him, and he passed out. The next thing he remembered was being in the ship's cap, in the, in the captain's uh, cabin. Now we're going to go back almost 3,000 years and meet Jonah in the belly of the great fish in his prayer. I already read the prayer. Joseph, uh, Joseph, Jonah had been running from God. He went down to Joppa, opposite the direction of Nineveh, where he's called to go. He went down to the boat, and he went down into the boat and fell asleep. And then he went down into the sea, and finally down into the belly of the great fish. Just as God had prepared a great storm, he also prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. What a unique prayer closet Jonah had. Jonah's prayer in the belly of the great fish. If I had to summarize Jonah's prayer, it would go something like this again. I deserved everything that has happened to me and more. Yet your grace and mercy have saved me and given me another chance. That's a good prayer, an attitude for us to have when things go bad. It says, so the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And this is where Pat's going to take it up next week. Jonah still has 375 miles to go to get to Nineveh. Here are some lessons for us, though, from Jonah's prayer. Number one, he was as good as dead. He was as good as dead. When we get to the point of hopelessness, God is there for us. He, he said, out of the belly of Sheol I cried. Jonah felt like he was in the place of the dead, Sheol. His only hope was God, nothing else. Corey Dent Ten Boom wrote this, you can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. Call this my second sermon in a sentence. You can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. We don't have to be swallowed by a great fish to know that Christ is all we have and need. God sometimes allows us to be in situations where there is no earthly, humanly hope. He is the only answer. And... My wife, Jean, is going to share one such situation from over 40 years ago when uh, we, she especially, had uh, lost, there's no other hope other than turning to God. So we're going to welcome Jean up here. I was hesitant when Tom asked me if I had ever had a situation where I felt like I had nowhere else to go but God. I did have a situation, and I knew exactly what it was, but usually whenever I tell this story, I cry. 
And the grandkids will say, Grandma, tell that story about Uncle David. And I say, oh, honey, you guys, I can't because it makes me sad and I cry. And sweet little Albert says, well, Grandma, when you're going to cry, just remember the end of the story. It ends good. You don't have to cry. So I'm going to give that a shot today. Um, when David was 14 months old, I was in Valley City visiting my parents, and Tom was in Columbus, Ohio, taking some tests or something, and he got sick. And I don't run to the doctor often, but he was just off. And so I took him to the doctor one morning, and the doctor checked him out, and he said, you know, I think he just has a virus. It's just going to have to run its course. And he gave him, him an aspirin to alleviate his... Um, I guess pain or whatever. And I took him home. And I went home that day and afternoon and evening. He just kept getting worse and worse. And through the night and the next morning, he was just very lethargic and just, um, yeah, just lethargic is the best. And his eyes were weird. So I brought him back to the doctor and I said, He's just not normal. Something's wrong. He, I just, he's just not normal. And he again said, well, it's just a virus. There's nothing we can do. It'll run its course. And so he left the room, and I was sitting there, and the nurse came over to me, and she said, I agree with you. Your boy is sick. She said, if he doesn't get better this afternoon, I would bring him back and go through the emergency room. So I said, okay. I went home, and that afternoon I put him down for a nap, and I thought I heard some whimpering, so I went into the room, and he was standing up on the playpen with his arms over the playpen with his head down, like he was standing up sleeping. And I went to him, and his little lips were blue, and I picked him up, and he wasn't breathing, and I screamed. My dad was home. I said, Dad, David's not breathing. And um, I laid him on the bed, and I started breathing into his mouth. And my dad, smart man, just took off right across the street. We lived across the street from a doctor. And he brought Dr. Jensen right over, and he came into the into the room, and um, by then David was breathing better, and he said, I think he's okay, just get in the car and take him to the emergency room. We lived two blocks from the hospital. So we got in the car, and I, my dad was driving, and I sat down, and I just started bawling. And my dad said, Gene, this is no time to cry. And I laugh at now because I think, oh my goodness, my, my baby almost died, but this isn't a time to cry. When can we cry? But my dad, he was kind of a gruff guy, but he didn't like to see his daughters cry, and I think it made him uncomfortable. But, and it was wise because I needed to be strong. So we went to the ER, and they couldn't get an um, IV in his vein because they were collapsed, I guess, so they did this. Seth would know the name for it. It's a cut, in, cut down or cut in or something, and they cut, and then they pulled out the vein and put the IV in and put us in an ambulance, and the doctor even came with us in the ambulance because he was so concerned. David was that sick, and I sat in the front, and we went very fast to Fargo, and when we got to Fargo, they said, go up to, I don't know, some floor in the hospital. We'll bring, bring him up there after we do whatever they do. So I went up there and was waiting, and the doctor came out finally and said, we don't know what's wrong. We think we're going to do a uh, um, spinal tap because it might be, we think it could be meningitis. But I just want you to know that your boy is very sick, and he might not make it through the night. And I was pretty shocked to hear that. 
And shortly after he left, my sister Anne showed up to be with me. And we were able to... Um, we were able to go into the room and see him for the first time. He was not responsible. He was laying on a cold mat to keep his temperature down. And I just have this vision of my sister Anne reading scripture over him and praying for him. And then finally she got up and she said, Jean, we need to pray. We need to pray. So we asked the nurse where we could go to pray. And she gave us this room. And we went in there and we dropped to our knees and we started praying. And we prayed all the things that you pray, you know, the great physician, give the doctors wisdom, heal him, all those things. And we prayed and we prayed. And then finally, I broke. And I realized that David really wasn't mine. He belongs to God. And I relinquished hold. And I said, Lord, whatever you want, I want. And I had this amazing peace just flood me. And we, it was about 3 or 4 in the morning, and we got done praying, and we went. And the nurse said we could go see him again, and we went in there. He was still laying there, and I went up to him. I said, David, Mommy's here. I love you so much. And he turned his head, and he opened his eyes, and he looked at me. And these little tears came down his eyes. Well, you all know how the story ends. Because David's there, sitting with his beautiful wife, Catherine, and they have four beautiful children. Yeah. Um, God healed David. He healed him. It was a miracle. He was later diagnosed. They later diagnosed him with Rye syndrome. And when they discharged him four days later, the doctor said to me, I have never seen a baby come into the hospital as sick as your baby and leave four days later. It was a miracle. But God also did a miracle in my heart. He changed me. We went on to have six more children, and I knew that each one of those kids weren't mine. They belonged to the Lord. And I offered them up to the Lord. I was just a steward for a time. And you know what? There are three things that the Lord taught me through relinquishing my kids to the Lord. And the first one is that any good that my kids did, it wasn't me. It was God. And that kept me from being proud. The second one was anything bad they did, I didn't take personal. These kids belong to God. And the third thing is it gave me real confidence in prayer. Many times I'd say, God, Lord, you better rescue your kids. They're completely out of control. They need help. And I meant it. I felt they were God's children, and God cared for them more than I did. And then the other thing is I would tell the devil, I would tell Satan, you will not get these kids because they belong to God. You will not get these kids. And um, if I had never been put in that situation where I really, I did literally had nowhere else to go, the doctor had given me little hope that night. I would have never probably learned how to truly dedicate my children to the Lord. And I also, the most important thing I learned is that prayer must first be a surrender to God's will. Like I grew up saying the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you.
One more time. You can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. Second lesson from Jonah's prayer is that his prayer is really a dox, doxology. He isn't asking for things. He starts with thanksgiving, verses 2 through 6. He continues with contrition for his wayward ways, verses 7 and 8. And in verse 7, it says, the word remembered, remembered means to act on a thing, not just like call to mind, but I remember the Lord. In other words, I'm, I'm following you, Lord. Not just, oh yeah, God's out there. He closes his prayer at the rededication of his life to God in verse 9. Next, parts of his prayers, parts of his prayers come from the Psalms. And I'll show that in a moment. So he's either, he's either got a bunch of these Psalms memorized, or maybe it's just, you know, Jewish custom, how they pray, and it coincides with the Psalms. But here's, here's some uh, intersections of his prayers, parts of his prayer with Psalms. Verse 2 of chapter 2, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Compare that with Psalm 18, verse 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple. My cry came before him, even to his ears. In Psalm 120, verse 1, In my distress, I called upon the Lord, and he heard me. Verses 2 and 3, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. And that's reflected in Psalm 116. The, the pains of death encompassed me, and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found <clears throat> trouble and sorrow. And again, Psalm 120, In my distress I called upon the Lord, and he heard me. And then this one, verse 3, he says, all, all your billows and your waves passed over me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Psalm 42, verse 7 says, all your waves and billows have gone over me. That last verse is indicative of what Jesus went through on the cross. All of God's, all of the judgment for sin was laid upon Jesus. All God's waves and billows. Now, Jonah said billows and waves. Psalm says waves and billows. So he got the order wrong, but, you know, we will forgive him for that. It wasn't quite word perfect. Here's an application for all of us now. Application time. Read and pray through the Psalms of the day. Read and pray through the Psalms of the day. Think of, a, think of an issue you're facing right now. A problem, a dilemma. Or maybe it's on the other side. Maybe it's a wonderful celebration, a victory. The longest book in the Bible is the book, is the book of Psalms. <clears throat> Nearly every problem or dilemma known to man is addressed. You can find uh, connection with, intersection with, in the book of Psalms. I know folks who have made it a practice to read through Psalms every month. Five psalms a day times 30 days is 150 psalms. It's not necessarily my practice, uh, practice that I have, but I've had seasons in my life when things were going haywire, and I turn to the book of Psalms, and I'll, and I'll do that exact thing. I'll read the psalm of the day, then the 130 after that, and 30 after that, and so on. So here's what we're going to do today. I would, again, I'd, I'd like you to think of some, something in life you're going through now, some issue, some problem or concern, 
maybe something positive. And we're going to read, we won't be able to read all these, but we're going to read through the five Psalms from today. And I'd like you to pay close attention, see if anything connects with you, okay? The verses will be on the screen, and I'm doing that to help you stay focused so you don't wander away, focus on the screen. I'll be reading them. And uh, again, some of these Psalms, we're just going to read parts of them for the sake of time. Here we go. So today's the what of January, the 21st of January. We're going to start with Psalm 21. It's a good one for me, as I read through this, it's a good one for me when I'm angry at the evil in our country, in our world, and in government. The king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation, how greatly shall he rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips, Selah. For you meet him with the blessings of goodness. You set a crown of pure gold upon his head. He asked for life from you and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great in your salvation. Honor and majesty you have placed upon him. For you have made him most blessed forever. You have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Their offspring you shall destroy from the earth, and their descendants from among the sons of men. For they intended evil against you. They devise the plot which they are not able to perform. Therefore you will turn, turn their back. You will make ready your arrows on your string toward their faces. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. That's Psalm 21. Now we go forward 30 digits to Psalm 51. This is a good one for confession of sin. When we, God brings something to our attention that we've, we've wronged the King of Heaven and we need to confess. Psalm 51, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit, a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. 
Just forward 30 more paces to Psalm 81. Another prayer, including this, a prayer of repentance. Sing aloud to God our strength. Make a joyful shout to the God of Jacob. Raise a song and strike the timbrel, the pleasant harp with the flute. Blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon, at the, at the full moon on our solemn feast day. For this is a statute for Israel and a law of the God of Jacob. For he established in Joseph for a, this he established in Joseph for a testimony when he went throughout the land of Egypt, where I heard a language that I did not understand. I removed his shoulder from the burden. His hands were freed from the basket. You called in trouble and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I preserved you. I proved you, excuse me, I proved you at the waters of Meribah, Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you, O Israel, if you will listen to me. There should be no foreign God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. And Alexander will skip, uh, go, let's go down to Psalm 111. Next Psalm. Honoring God for his goodness and his faithfulness. Praise the Lord. I'll praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. The works of the Lord are great, studied, studied by all who have pleasure in them. His work is honorable and glorious. His righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He has given food to those who fear him. He'll ever, he will ever be mindful of his covenant. He has declared to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. Skip to Psalm 141. We're going to skip a few verses. We're running out of time. Last one. God's safekeeping from enemies and from wickedness. Lord, I cry out to you. Make haste to me. Give ear to my voice when I cry out to you. Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a guard, O Lord, over, the, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing, to practice wicked works with men who work iniquity. And do not let me eat of their delicacies. For let the righteous strike me, it should be a kindness, and let him reprove me, it should be as excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it, for still my prayer is against the deeds of the wicked. We'll stop that one. We'll skip, skip up to... You, you can go blank for now, because it'll be a little bit for their last um, PowerPoint, Alexander. Well, you know, <clears throat> I hope I never have to experience what Jonah did, or what James Bartley did. But... Um, I've had my lows in life, and so have you. Prayers to God always refresh the soul, and prayers based on the Psalms especially have that effect. When you're unsure of how to pray, turn to the Psalms. You will find identification there with what you're going through. Start with the Psalm of the day, the number corresponding of the day, and move forward in multiples of 30. More than likely, more than likely, God will meet you and minister to your soul through one of those five psalms. Here's our sermon in a sentence again. I, Jonah could say this, I deserve everything that has happened to me, 
and we could say it too, I deserved everything that's happened to me and more, yet your grace and your mercy have saved me and given me another chance. And again, that second sermon in the sentence, you can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. Let's stand for closing prayer. Lord, no doubt, every single person here has had some really, really low, difficult points in their life. But you've been there for us, and you'll continue to. We thank you that when all else is lost, we still have Christ. He's all we need. He's all we have sometimes. Pray you'd bless these folks, guard and keep their hearts in Christ. Pray that when, when things turn bad, when they need help, help all of us to turn to your word, particularly the book of Psalms. You might minister to our souls. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And just a reminder, if you'd like prayer, I'll be down in front.